Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. My guest today is Rosemary Sullivan, has written several books on the Soviet era under Stalin. Among them, Stalin's daughter, which we are going to discuss today. And of course, as always on this podcast, I want to begin with how did you come about studying this era of the Soviet Union? Perhaps it was because in 1979, uh, in the height of the Cold War, I was living in London and saw an ad for Aeroflot trips to the Soviet Union. And so I decided to go on my own. I went to Moscow. I went to Leningrad, as it was then called. I met the BBC reporter there, Kevin Ruane, uh, through a friend. And I became fascinated by how the Soviet system worked. I won't go into detail, but I began to understand that the way to get ahead in the Soviet Union in those days was betrayal. When I got back to Canada, I joined Amnesty International and set up a very large Congress called the Writer in Human Rights in Aid of Amnesty International. And um, everyone from Joseph Brodsky to Susan Sontag to Jacobo Timmerman to Eduardo Galliano came. And ever since then, uh, I then returned to Czechoslovakia. Uh, within a few months, my colleague where I was teaching at the University of Toronto was Joseph Skoretsky, who uh, had uh, uh, gone into exile in 1968 with the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia. And when I went back to Czechoslovakia, I met his friends. I was able to read uh, his books, uh, or see his books at least, uh, in Samizda. So it it was totally compelling to me. In uh, 2011, uh, there was in the New York Times and in the Toronto Star notice of the death of Svetlana Aleluyeva, Stalin's daughter. And by coincidence, I was talking to my uh, publisher, editor in New York uh, at HarperCollins, Claire uh, Wachtel. And we we spoke about how fascinating that life would be. And I said, gee, it would be really interesting to write that life. And she said, do it. I said, but I don't speak Russian. She said, good, because uh, I don't want a uh, uh, somebody, a historian who has a, a bone to pick. I like somebody who's an independent outsider to write this. So she said, I'll give you 10 days to write a proposal, which I did, a 20-page proposal, describing the kind of research I would do. And then there were two stages. One was to get permission from Svetlana's daughter, um, Olga, as she was called then, uh, to write the biography uh, and using published and unpublished sources and the second was to find myself research assistants who would accompany me when I was ready to go to Moscow. So I found two wonderful young women, Anastasia Kostryakova and Elena Romanova, to help me do the research, the Russian research. But as you know, Svetlana defected in 1967. And after that, between 67 and 2011, everything was in English. So let's begin with her early life, because as you know, it would never be easy to grow up being the children of Stalin, the Red Tsar, as he, as he is called. And of course, I think the testimony to this is her brother's fate, Destiny's as well, one becoming an alcoholic and the other throwing himself during the Second World War to a fence in a concentration camp and dying, dying there. So 
it was not even for Svetlana, of course. She, though she, as if I remember correctly, she was Stalin's favorite. It was, was never going to be easy, easy life for her. So let's begin with her early years. As we talked about, that that was the most happiest time of her life. The, the happiest time of her life, um, perhaps apart from the first days of her marriage mm. to Wesley Peters or to um, Rajiv Singh, the happiest days of her life, which she called those days of sunshine, uh, were her childhood years from um, to, till she was six and a half. Uh, the summers would be sent, spent at the uh, dacha in Zubalovo, which was um, uh, formerly uh, owned, of course, by the czars. Uh, very elegant residences, though the Bolsheviks divided them up so that they probably had only a small one. But um, gardening, going fishing with her grandfather, uh, family dinners, uh, her mother always busy, but there. Uh, Svetlana had a difficult relationship with her mother because her mother was trying to be a Bolshevik wife, which meant going off to party meetings, trying to educate herself in certain ways. And when Svetlana said, uh, spoke about her mother, she said she had very little, the only thing she remembered was her mother leaning over her and she could smell her perfume. She didn't remember embraces. She did remember one lesson from her mother, which was her mother took her finger and crossed Svetlana's heart and said, that's where you keep your secrets, <laughs> which is rather sinister, right? Mm. But her relationship with, with her father, when her mother and father would uh, fight, Svetlana would put her arms around her father's uh, Cossack boots and uh, he would quiet down. She, she was the one who had an intimate relationship with him until her mother's death. She did not know it. Uh, in fact, only a very, very small circle of people knew that Svetlana, Svetlana's mother, uh, uh, Nadezda, had committed suicide. Uh, Svetlana just thought her mother had died. What, what happened was Stalin moved the family to an apartment in the Kremlin. And uh, Svetlana would have to sit through every meal uh, with the members of the Politburo, whether it was Beria or Khrushchev or whatever. She always said that her political shrewdness came from watching how there was double talk at that table. There was official stuff, and then there was the private, um, you know, uh, conspiracy uh, material that was explaining what the official version really was about, which was fascinating. So she... Uh, she then became uh, the apple of her daughter, of her father's eye. He would call her his little hostess. Uh, she would send him a note. Uh, she was he was first secretary. Beria was second secretary, etc. She'd write to the first secretary saying she wanted to go to the movies, and he would write back, "I submit, Jay Stalin," mm -hmm. or he would uh, call himself the sign himself the poor peasant Jay Stalin. Uh, he always called her. Uh, himself her little daddy uh that relationship lasted till she was 16 and then it fell apart before before that though i want to talk about her brother as her relationship with brother her brothers as well because it kind of to me so it's a little bit like a medieval family medieval royal family where you know you as you know in that the, they didn't, wouldn't go with the lot and there would be quarrels about the throne etc in so no, no royal families ever really got along that well, but and it would be kind of the same here as well because she would be bullied really quite a lot by her brothers, and you know his Adbrudi Vasily would even tell tell her sexual stories that would be put her off sexual adventures for quite some time that she was would never be a sex, 
seeing sexual pleasure as well. Her relationship uh, with her brothers, I can only comment on what she wrote about it. Mm. Uh, and so about her older, her uh, older brother, uh, she said that uh, he was her, he took care of her. He was the one who watched over her. He, um, uh, he was her, her half brother, her stepbrother, uh, born in the Caucasus uh, from uh, uh, Stalin's with Stalin's first wife. She didn't see him until, uh, you know, he was well into his teens uh, and she was growing up. Uh, so that was a very moving and positive relationship, but it ended tragically when the, uh, he was um, captured by the Allies and imprisoned. And uh, eventually, rather than being used as a tool and so on, he committed suicide. Her relationship with her other brother uh, was um, uh, quite a bit different. Uh, she, uh, I, I would say that um, he was uh, only a few years older than her, five years older. She always said that um, when uh, her mother died, uh, he was her favorite. And when he, when she died, he was never the same. He began to drink, to um, to um, use drugs, to fraternize with women. Uh, he had at least three marriages, probably four, if I think about it. Uh, and uh, it was it was as if he became the parody of the dictator's uh, dictator's son, um, using his power ruthlessly whenever he had to. Uh, that Stalin cared for him seems to be suggested by the fact that he never allowed him, him to be in, involved in any um, uh, aviation uh, exercises uh, or indeed to fight as a pilot in the war uh, because he was protecting him. Uh, that said, uh, Stalin's preoccupation during the war uh, was elsewhere, obviously. So... Um, the her relationship with her brothers was, I would say, quite distant in a way, except, you know, yeah. So, but you know, uh, before that, I just that's just there was he was never doing such scenes down even before he got became an alcoholic, right? There was never talk. Was there any hope that he was in would would succeed him before before he became an alcoholic, or it was was there never question? of doubts that he wouldn't? No, I don't think there was any... Uh, I mean, uh, after Stalin died in 1953, uh, he w he became uh, even more uh, aggressive in his demand to be a member of the ruling elite mm. until eventually uh, Khrushchev had him arrested and put, put in prison uh, as, a, as a kind of way of uh, <laughs> uh, curing his alcoholism. But when he when he got out, he he he, um, he went back to his old ways. Mm. I remember I met when I was in Moscow. I met um, uh, the uh, one of one of his sons, um, who. Um, sorry, can we take a is, yeah? We do of it course, we we'll be, we'll be right back after this, and we're back. So yeah, you remember, you forgot the name, but let's, you know, you, re you replied it again. So 
You met, met his, you say you met his son. I just wanted to say that uh, when I went to Moscow, I was able to meet uh, the son of Svetlana's brother, Vasily. Obviously, um, he had changed his name to Sasha Berdonsky. He'd left Stalin and changed to his mother's name, Berdonsky. Uh, I spoke to him about his father, and I said to him, um, your father, Vasily, seemed to be a parody of the dictator, Mm. Uh, over-drinking, over-womanizing, trying to manipulate his power. But Svetlana seemed to be completely different. And Sasha said, no, 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 you're wrong. Vasily was just a parody, yes. He was uh, a silly man. What happened uh, was that uh, when he met his second wife, he abandoned uh, his first wife and his children were put in the care of this woman who neglected them completely. So he said it was a relief to get into the Russian army after his childhood, which has mm-hmm. been of an extreme statement. But anyway, Sasha Bradonsky said, you're right about Vasily, but you're wrong about Svetlana. Svetlana had her father's organized intelligence. She had his discipline. She just didn't have his evil. Mm. I loved her deeply, he said. And mm. um, another thing that wasn't easy about growing up, because as you know, if you've known a little bit about Soviet history, the pre- in the Kremlin they all lived together, and obviously it was quite a close companionship, comradeship, as they would say. And you know they would go to school together, the children of the politicians. But as you know, even as a politician, you were safe under the hands of Stalin, and people would suddenly disappear, and that would mean that your friends, school friends, would also disappear because if your family. Your father would disappear and sent to the gulag. You were no longer obviously welcome to the Kremlin. So it must that must have been another traumatizing part of her childhood. And because she wasn't really explained what happened to her friends, friends why they disappeared. So it must be and why why their family suddenly got out of the Kremlin. So it can't it can't have been easier. Another thing that can't have been easy for her. Uh, again, she described her childhood when they all lived together in the Kremlin as wonderful. You know, uh, they would all get together and play on the statues in the yards outside. Um, I um, talked to some of her childhood friends and they said everything was good until uh, uh, 1937 when the terror began. Uh, by that point, Stalin uh, had began to uh, become convinced that uh, there were plots against him. He had to uh, secure his power. And um, at first, it didn't seem to... I mean, you're talking about an 11-year-old child, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, she wasn't... What was going on, it wasn't clear. Uh, but then uh, um, one of her uh, um, school friends... Her mother, uh, her father rather disappeared. And the mother asked the school friend, her daughter, to give Svetlana a letter. Svetlana gave, took the letter to her father, which requested that this man be released. Uh, and uh, Stalin was furious. He said, never do anything like this again. Oddly enough, he did secure the release of this man, ordered it, but otherwise... And so Svetlana had no idea really what was going on as she watched slowly um, members in her own family disappear. She uh, had a favorite aunt and uncle, the Svenitzes, 
and they disappeared. They were put in uh, Lublianka and then they were executed. The prison Lublianka and were executed. Um, and um, it was said by historians after that Stalin could then say, look, it's not me. It's happening to my own family. Mm. So uh, then she watched her uncle, Pavel, die of a heart attack when he was being accused. She later, uh, by uh, the 40s, um, saw two of her aunts um, imprisoned. Uh, and they were they were in prison for about seven years before they were released. Uh, so she began to understand the, the, her father's world. But to actually put it uh, as her father's responsibility, that didn't become clear until one specific episode. Mm. When she was 16 years old, she uh, apparently, you know, um, Vasily used to have uh, parties at the dacha and so on. And uh, one of the... Uh, the uh, people uh, who was uh, invited to the dacha was a very well-known um, filmmaker, and uh, Alexei Kapler. And uh, he took a shine to Svetlana. He said afterwards that what so impressed him was her independence of mind. She seemed to be a free thinker in this world that was so closed down. And they began a very platonic relationship. They'd meet uh, in the um, opera and go out and walk hand in hand in the park. He would put uh, her hand in his pocket. Uh, it was a very chaste relationship. He was then off, uh, it was war, of course. She was then off to, uh, he was then off to uh, filming the front and sent a letter to her, which got published in the newspaper, which was in effect, I'm looking at you, uh, staring out from the windows of the, uh, of the of the, um, of the of the Kremlin, uh, Stalin was furious. Had Alexei Kapler immediately arrested. He was accused of collaborating with British spies, and he was sentenced to five years in in uh, in the north. Uh, and uh, another five years after he tried to come back to Moscow. So uh, Svetlana watched her father in prison a man who had a chaste and honorable relationship with her imprisoned for 10 years. Now, the truth was, Alexei Kapler was 39, the same age that uh, that Stalin was when Stalin fell in love with his wife, um, who was 17, the same, more or less the same age as Svetlana. So Svetlana was repeating what her father did, but it, it cost her dearly. Mm. After that, she began to realize that... Uh, her father, as she put it in her later book, uh, Only One Year, she she said he had emptied himself completely to power and there was no person left. Hmm. And But she would meet another one who was, was no better, in, at least in Stalin's eyes. Though I, I believe, I don't, if I know this correctly, I'm going to try to say his name, Grigori Moroso is... Who would be her first husband? Grisha, but, yeah, yeah. But but of course there was another. If I remember correctly, I might not, I might not here, but I believe that he was Jewish as well, which was in Stalin's eyes a big no-no because of course he was as well and a big anti-Semite. You know, there's some um, um, ambivalence among the historians about the degree of uh, of um... Stalin's anti-Semitism. Mm. He certainly didn't approve of Muratsov, 
Um, he thought he was a minor figure. He expected his daughter to marry somebody much more um, of her own station. Uh, but it, it would also seem that uh, anti-Semitism was part of, uh, of his response. Mm. Uh, the child that came from the marriage of uh, Grisha and uh, Svetlana, Joseph, uh, Stalin only met him once in, in the whole time. And uh, Svetlana uh, was devastated that her father refused to meet him. She eventually, as you know, um, divorced Morozov and mm. married... Um, Yuri Zdanov. Mm. Uh, Zdanov, the father, was a member of, uh, of uh, Stalin's inner circle, which was mm. much more in keeping with what's fe- mm. what Stalin expected for his daughter. But, but it was never love, that second marriage with her, if I remember correctly, either. Not at all. She was uh, marrying because it was her father's suggestion. She wanted, was trying to accommodate her father. In fact, again... Um, uh, Sasha Berdonsky, that is uh, uh, Stalin's grandson, uh, always said that um, if you're the child of a dictator like uh, like uh, Stalin, you either have to totally accept him, which was the case, for instance, with the children of some of the Nazis, uh, or you completely reject him. But Svetlana was kind of caught in the middle. It was very hard for her to to disavow the affection, the love she felt for her father, possibly also because she had lost her mother. But by the end of her life, um, in her um, residence in Wisconsin, there was no photograph of Stalin. There was just a photograph mm. of her mother and her daughter. I, I remember watching a not recent documentary that came out on Netflix, um, where she was she would get really mad when the reporter would come. She would talk about it eventually. That she would get really mad, I and mean, we will talk about this when the end comes as well. But that she would refuse to talk, even talk about Stalin, and that, that she, at the at the end of her life, there were um, there were uh, as I think again, Sasha Berdonsky, such to me, such a um, shrewd and intelligent man. He said there were so many myths about Stalin. Uh, when people think of Stalin, they think that. Stalin himself alone was the uh, Bolshevik system. Mm. But in fact, if he hadn't been propped up by the Khrushchev's, uh, you know, whose reputation in the Ukraine was horrific, by Beria, who was a, mm. uh, a sadist, uh, by others, um, he, it was a system that was uh, supported by thousands, is what Svetlana, mm. what, what made Svetlana angry. And to make it as if it was only Stalin's invention. Yes, Stalin right. was ruthless enough to understand, you know, how to eliminate any any threat. When uh, when he died in March of 1953, there's a good case uh, to be made that the next person on his list was Beria, because mm. Beria was getting too powerful. So this was how St- Stalin, much like it would seem Putin. Uh, had to be aware of where the potential rival or threat lay. Mm. That was his, uh, his genius. He was able to see it. But that the system and its murderousness was entirely Stalin's fault made Svetlana angry. And when she was interviewed, for instance, uh, she always felt she was being pushed uh, to confirm this myth of her father as the sinkhole 
into which all uh, Russian evil could be thrown. I mean, you can kind of understand the frustration there as well. So let us let us talk about Stan's death for a second because this is when things start. She, she does stay in the Soviet Union for quite a little while now after Stan's death. So what happens to her? Everyone in dies, and you know Khrushchev takes over. Um, the uh, film, The Death of Stalin. Mm. Seen it? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it. I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's a parody. It's a yeah. satire, but it but comes very close, very close to yeah. the truth. And and the, and the scene with Beria really kind of fits yes. quite yeah. nicely. I don't think they get Svetlana quite right. They mm. make her way too passive. But in any case. What happened was, as you know, uh, he died in 53 and then in 56, finally Khrushchev made his secret speech in which he uh, made Stalin responsible for the gulag and um, for the murderous system uh, and so on. And he uh, ordered the release of hundreds of thousands of prisoners from the gulag. Um, Khrushchev was, of course, not admitting to the fact that he was the responsible for the death of millions through famine in the Ukraine. But in any case, he got to be. So there's, there's a poignant moment in which Svetlana is uh, at, her, at her university sitting beside um, uh, other students. Uh, and um, suddenly Khrushchev, the, the, the local party had had reports on uh, on the secret speech. Hmm. And Svetlana is profoundly, profoundly humiliated. Uh, so that begins her withdrawal. The only way she felt to, she could save herself was to withdraw publicly. Uh, so that was 1956. She, um, at one point, um, she, in the, in the uh, 60s, she met an Indian man, uh, Brajev Singh, when they were both uh, recuperating from problems in the in the um, in the party hospital, uh, he from uh, uh, lung issues and she from tonsillitis, and a, a, a relationship started, which became a very important relationship. Her daughter, uh, Svetlana's daughter, would say it was the most important love affair of Svetlana's life, um, and. Uh, she wanted to go back to India with Brajev Singh because he was ill. Uh, and when she asked uh, Kosygin and Brezhnev if she could go, they said, no, Stalin's daughter will not um, marry a uh, an Indian fakir, as they put it. We should um, also mention that she, of course, divorced her second husband as well. Yes, Muratov, uh, or Zdanov, uh, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, in fact, she had a child with Zdanov, uh, Katya. So she had two children from her two uh, uh, marriages in Moscow. And then she was on her own, uh, living quietly, avoiding um, uh, contact with the public, more or less, though she did have some very important friendships. But then she met Brajit Singh. As I say, and I'm answering your question about uh, why it took her so long to leave. Mm. Uh, in all that time, even though she was Stalin's daughter, she'd only visited Moscow and uh, uh, and the dacha in dachas in Sochi. That uh, she did not travel. Um, then, uh, when she she couldn't go with Rajiv Singh to India, he died in Moscow, and he'd always asked if she could 
scatter his ashes on the Ganges. And mm -hmm. she went to Brezhnev and Kosygin and asked for permission. And she was in, on a plane the next day. Mm -hmm. Sitting beside her was not the man she uh, wanted to marry, but his ashes. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's, when she was in India, she said she started, she got to the point of, it was too much to be treated like state property and mm -hmm. told what to do. And that's why she defected. I mean, I, I do want to draw back and get to 53 at first. And we know now, obviously, that she had no political ambitions. But at the time of the death of Stalin, because as you said, she was intelligent. She was, uh, she was, had, you know, everything was silly, was not. So was, and again, probably because she was a woman, but was there ever any fear among the polit elite, political elite that she would take over after Stalin, that she would try to become head premier of the Soviet Union. Did it try to, to just get rid of her or was there ever- She never, she never saw, it? she never sought any political position. After Stalin died, uh, the, uh, she could see, because as I say, she always claimed that uh, having uh, all those, mm. that 10 years of uh, dinners with the uh, Politburo members, she could see how they thought. Mm. Uh, after Stalin died, the battle for uh, successor was between Khrushchev and Beria. Beria was absolutely mm. sure that he was going to uh, to be the replacement of Stalin. Um, actually, there's still a mystery attached to this, which is uh, he was finally uh, set, uh, put on trial in December of 53. Uh, but there is some suggestion he was already dead by the summer. So mm -hmm. a dead man was tried. Whether that's true or not is... Very difficult to ascertain because the KGB files oh. are closed. In any case, um, Svetlana could see what the system was, and she was not about to put put herself forward as a figure. And uh, she was always, it seems to me, uh, careful to keep herself and her two children separate from the political game, uh, ruthless as it was that she saw in in action. Mm -hmm. But, so let's talk, go back to the defection and, and of course, to the fact she did go to the... I mean, is this the point when she goes to the American um, embassy to talk with the George Keenan at this time? Yes. Uh, one of the things that was interesting is that uh, Svetlana had the ambition to be a writer. She wanted to be a writer. She loved literature. Uh, and um, she had a, f a friend who was a publisher uh, um, and told her, you know, he told her, look, you have an immensely original story and you should write it. And she said, how can I write it? He said, write it as letters to me. And so um, 21 uh, Letters is, is her compilation of her childhood in the, in the uh, Kremlin. And it's a very, it, it ends in effect with Stalin's death, but it's a very powerful portrait of this intelligent young woman describing her, her her grandparents who were her grandfather who had been an original Bolshevik sideline, uh, the disappearance of her aunt, um, the imprisonment of other of, of others, uh, and uh, watching her father as he withdrew into this zombie of uh, obsessed with paranoia and power. Uh, it's a very powerful book. So she gets to. Um, Brezhnev Singh, who'd been her lover before she defected, mm. remember, had told mm. her this is a very dangerous book. You better do something with it. Mm. And so she gave the book to a friend of his 
who was uh, in the uh, Indian embassy, and he took it with him to India. Mm. When she uh, got permission from uh, Kosygin and Brezhnev to fly to India with Brezhnev Singh's ashes, and the only reason she was given permission was because there was an arms deal. The Soviets were selling arms to the Indians. Um, she uh, went to uh, the ambassador uh, who had, uh, had carried her book and asked for it back. Uh, she was manipulated by the um, Russian ambassador to India. You know, he told her, oh, well, you don't need to go to the ceremony uh, in the Ganges. Uh, well, you can't uh, stay in uh, with your friends. You must stay here, et cetera, et cetera. She got so fed up. She said she didn't want to be state property any longer. And she realized that the best solution was to defect to the American embassy, which mm. was not far away. The day of her defection was uh, Women's Day for Russians, and everybody was drunk, as she said, and she wouldn't be missed. She sat there. She'd already bought presents for her children, and she thought, seriously, what would it be like for my children if I defected? And she, she concluded accurately that it would be, they wouldn't come to any harm, but whether they might forgive her is another question. Mm. So she called a taxi. The taxi drove her to the American embassy. She was, um, it was after hours. They answered. She showed her Soviet passport, which meant she was a defector, and they let her in. Uh, the um, person in charge of defectors was a man called Robert uh, Rail, uh, whom I met later and spent a weekend uh, interviewing him and his wife about this period. Uh, Robert Rail um, brought her to the, uh, you know, the interrogation room, if you want. And uh, uh, one of the uh, the diplomats said to her, she said to them, you may not believe this, but I am Stalin's daughter. Hmm. Yeah, what, what, the, the, what was their yeah. reaction? Yeah, when they heard his it, reaction it must have been was, quite surprising. Yes, his reaction was, "You say you're Stalin's daughter, the Stalin." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Robert Rail, uh, she gave him the manuscript she was carrying of twenty letters to a friend, and uh, he immediately took it to uh, the uh, Russian-speaking section and could see that it was authentic. You know, at first, is this woman crazy? Is she a plant? Is she a spy? Who is she? Uh, but they decided that there was enough credibility given her book to her being Stalin's daughter. Um, they had sent uh, uh, telegrams to the um, to the FBI and the uh, C, uh, you know CIA and so on, uh, and um, apparently the American government didn't know Stalin had a daughter. Which is really interesting. shows you how quietly and privately uh, Stalin kept his daughter to himself. Mm. Any case, they decided to give her a visitor's visa because, in fact, she had been smart enough to uh, demand uh, her passport when she agreed to go back to Russia. Um, it was a very unusual thing for a Soviet citizen to be able to carry their passport, but because she had her passport, she was given a visa and she was flown to the United States via Rome, stopped in Rome. Mm. But on the way, the uh, embassy in uh, New Delhi got a telex from, uh, from uh, the United States saying, have nothing to do with her, kick her out. Uh, but uh, they had to reply, she's already on her way. 
they I felt that they had the possibility of detente with the Soviets and they didn't want Stalin's daughter's defection to get in the way. As it turned out, the, the detente was an illusion anyway. So let's talk about the arrival to the United States because she does end up in there eventually, as you know. And it's got the lovely hotel of it's a kick in the face to the Soviet Union that the daughter of one of the their leaders would end up in in their enemy's territory, enemy camp, so to speak. So it's kind of a kick in the face, I feel like. Completely. And uh she was considered to be the most important uh, Soviet citizen to defect. What happened was um, when they landed in Rome, that is Robert Rail, who accompanied her, the CIA officer undercover, who had been uh, just a secretary and who was exposed as CIA in the process of uh, investigation into her defection. When they well, landed, wasn't in- a very good CIA then. Pardon? Wasn't a very good CIA then if he was exposed. No, it wouldn't have been his uh, his responsibility. It would have been the embassy. Somehow, they, the the uh, I think the 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 rumor was there, and the, a mm-hmm. reporter who reported it in the I don't know the New York Times, Washington Post, whatever, um, said that um, I am going to publish an article tomorrow saying that Robert Rail is CIA. If you don't dispute it, it will go forward, and they didn't dispute it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, when they arrived in Rome, it turned out that. Um, because the uh, Undersecretary of State, Floyd Kohler, didn't want her in the United States, they had to find a place to park her. And they I, tried- mean, I mean, you can't blame them, really, when the daughter of, of like you said, your enemy is uh, wanted to defect to your country. You can't really blame them for not wanting her in there. Well, you know, it's like not supporting Ukraine. I mean, you mm. know, yeah, it's, a, it's a principle. Uh, this woman uh, is defecting, uh, asking for asylum. And in fact, uh, Svetlana, I kept coming across her political shrewdness when she was at the embassy and they said, well, we're not sure she, we will take her. She said, how will I will uh, report to the um, international press and how will it look if the United mm-hmm. States, the country of freedom and whatever, is unwilling to give freedom to Stalin's daughter? Mm-hmm. So, in fact, they really didn't have much of a choice. But at that point, they were looking for a country to take her. And eventually the uh, the. Um, the Swiss agreed, uh, and so she was uh, flown to Switzerland, uh, where she went into hiding. The uh, KGB was hunting for her, obviously, uh, was looking, hoping for to be able to abduct her and take her back. Uh, the Americans were protecting her, uh, and um, it became known that she had this book, 20 Letters to a Friend. So you talk of George Kenan, Kenan, rather, uh, he um, brought his friend, Edward Greenbaum, a lawyer, uh, with him to uh, Switzerland, and they decided to attempt to sell Svetlana's memoir. Mm. They offered it without anybody having permission to read it. And the woman who was translating it had to, tra- had to lock it up every night, could not take it home or out or whatever. It was mm. a deep, deep secret <laughs> Um, in the end, uh, they were able to secure a million dollars for Svetlana. Wow. For her book. Now, a million dollars to a Soviet citizen is an illusion. She thought, you know, all she wanted was to be able to have a little apartment with a dog. And here she was, a millionaire. Mm. But it was her downfall because 
uh, suddenly she became a hot ticket. Who could get the million from her? Mm. So let's talk about when she gets the million. What what what's the next thing you should do after this? When she gets to the United States? Yeah. Because she uh, does get, so she does meet someone as well, and again she does get married to an American this time. Yeah. Um she um when she lands, apparently there was more a bigger crowd to meet her than uh, than met the Beatles. Hmm. I mean she was a huge, huge uh, item and she uh uh just spoke very briefly about the great relief she felt in being a country where you could speak your mind. Did she speak English at this time or did she? Oh, yes. Uh, she had, uh, um, Stalin had insisted she take English, English lessons when she was 10 years old so that she could be, uh, she could be present and uh, translate what uh, Churchill was saying. Mm. He didn't want to, he wanted somebody he completely trusted, i.e. his daughter, to be able to tell him what Churchill was saying when they had private meetings, which was not often, obviously. But he wanted his daughter to speak English, and she spoke very good English. Um, mm. So, uh, in fact, then she uh, she uh, tried to live a quiet life in Princeton and to work on her second book. Mm. Uh, and, yes, she had a couple of affairs, but she was... Um, she was she walked into a trap, which was very strange. Um, she was getting letters from a woman called Olga Vanna Wright, who was the wife of Frank Lloyd Wright, the great architect. Mm. Olga Vanna, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright was dead, and Olga Vanna lived at the uh, Taliesin Foundation's uh, headquarters, which uh, is very, very beautiful, as you possibly know, uh, and is a kind of place where a number of uh, intimates of the foundation live. Olga Vanna kept saying to Svetlana, her daughter, who had died um, years before, was called Svetlana. They were destined to meet and so on. And eventually, um, Svetlana agreed to fly out to Wisconsin to meet Olga Vanna Wright. The irony was that Olga Vanna Wright was a Montenegrin, and she had spent time in Belisi, in Georgia, at the same time as Stalin had been there and was about uh, Stalin's age. Um, Svetlana, uh, for, for Olga Vanna Wright, Svetlana was prey. She could see that she was now a millionaires. Uh, Olga Vanna wanted money for her, uh, for her foundation, for the uh, Taliesin Foundation. Uh, and she convinced her, her chief architect, who had been an apprentice of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, Wesley Peters, to court Svetlana. And quite cynically, uh, the, the, he did. He had various reasons to feel indebted to Olga Vanna Wright, which I won't get into, but uh, he courted her and they were married. Uh, and uh, Svetlana was deeply in love with uh, Wesley Peters and completely delusional. He was an architect who, was, who had projects in uh, the Middle East, uh, famous buildings he was working on, and her fantasy was that they would live quietly on a farm with a uh, a sheepdog and some cattle. Mm. Uh, and then she found herself pregnant. It was suggested by Olga Vanna that she have an abortion. She refused, and she gave birth to her daughter, her American daughter, in 1970. Mm. And that would be, you know, 17 years after her father's death. Uh, and um, the relationship with uh, Wesley Peters disintegrated. I uh, got to know um, 
Svetlana's daughter very well, and she said she actually met her father four times. So that was the uh, the fate. But uh, yeah. But the marriage doesn't again. The, the marriage doesn't work out as well. It doesn't either. work, and he fleeced her of all her money. Mm. By the time, uh, uh, even though she had legal advice and so on, she said a woman's um, material possessions belonged to her husband, a very Soviet idea. Money mm. didn't matter until she found that she was virtually without any money. And that she was living in America, which didn't help. Yeah. No, Mar <laughs> in, in America you need money. She didn't mm. know that. It took so, her a but, while. Mm. But, but I do, do believe she writes another book as well she she like said she wanted to become an author that she, she very much becomes and she it, it's another bestseller i think if i remember correctly yeah, it's only one year and it's um uh discrete chapters of her own memoir uh of her own autobiography her relationship with brejev singh um mm -hmm. her description of her father where she's very much more aggressively um negative about his politics um so it's it's yes it's a it's a good book i i my preference is uh 20 letters to a friend but this is a this is a good book and then she wrote two other books mm. but by that time um they were memoirs uh about her own life and she discovered that americans or anyone actually was not interested in her personal life so much as in her relationship with her father and mm. they weren't it was very difficult to find publishers mm. She did, but she did not want to talk or she finished with her father at this point that she was tired she was of talking with about her him. Father. Exactly, yeah. yeah. She wa the last book is about uh, her relationship with her uh, two children in Moscow, mm. which is uh, a very moving account. Um, but it, she, did not, she did not find a publisher for it. Mm. So... You mentioned that a KGB, in the, at least in the early years of her defection, they were hunting her, but eventually, did, did they just give up and realize that if we take her down and bring her back, it would be, it would not look good, and it's, it's a daughter of Stalin, and did they realize that if, if she, in the, even in the United States, though, that would not, as you know, that would not stop the KGB, but did they realize that if, if we, then something would be up if we took care of her? Um, did they give up? Huh. What happened um, initially was that uh, there was total shock that she had managed to defect. Mm. And the ambassador to India was, of course, demoted seriously because he'd let her escape. Uh, but then um, um, they sought, the KGB sought under Andropov, sought to uh, discredit her. Mm. One of the things that was very interesting, I mean, when you're, when you're writing a book like this, I, uh, of course, um, applied to the CIA to get their files uh, on uh, various people, including, you know, especially Svetlana, but on, on the various people, the FBI, to various uh, libraries. Uh, and one library, I had an ass assistant, uh, Sim Smiley, who was a wonderful uh, researcher, and she told me there was a collection of papers at Stanford. Um, and they were put there by a woman who had attempted to write a biography of uh, Svetlana in the 90s, Merle Sechrist, but who hadn't pursued it. Mm. Um, I collected, I got the um, description of the papers and discovered that there were two KGB files mm. in the uh, collection. 
Now, you know, when I went to uh, search for KGB material in 2011 to or 12 to 15, they were completely closed. Curiously, the files in Belize had somehow um, the the whole area had been under had caught fire. You know, there were there was going to be no access to KGB files. The only time there might have been access was right initially after the wall came down, but uh, since then, no. And in these two two KGB files, there were the strategies the KGB used to discredit Svetlana. One of the things uh, when I I was lucky enough to have the phone numbers and addresses of her relatives in Moscow when I went there. And I went to uh, visit uh, her uh, cousins. And um, one of them said something very curious happened with Joseph. Right at the time of Joseph, her son, right at the time of her defection, Joseph left his apartment in Moscow for the suburbs. And then very soon after that, he was back. Now, if you're Soviet, you're used to reading beneath the story, right? Uh, it was clear that uh, at first Joseph refused to help the uh, KGB, and then he acquiesced and got his, his status back. By then he was a doctor. Uh, so when I looked at these files, one file said, under Andropov, said that they had to, do, to get the children to make public statements about their mother, that she was promiscuous, unreliable, alcoholic, etc., and these statements did come out from Joseph and Katya. Uh, under pressure, they, they acquiesced. And then when the second book came out, the statement was that the people that Svetlana thanked in the book were the people who really wrote it. Hmm. Oh, they really seriously discredited her. Nobody took them seriously, I, I think, in the United States. But it was interesting that they made that effort. After that, there was one or two efforts at extraction, which didn't work. George Kennan writes about them. Uh, and then it was just leave her alone, let her, let her go. What, mm. what harm could she do? But to the end of her life, Svetlana was paranoid. Uh, when she was very ill at the, uh, in, in her last months, she um, had a lawyer's uh, um, notice, which was given to the uh, care facility where she was staying that the minute she died, her body would be cremated. She mm. didn't want her body being returned to the Soviet Union as if Stalin's daughter finally returned. Mm. So I want to forgive me for skipping a few years here, but from the 1990s, 1991, and the Soviet Union collapse, and what, what was her reaction when, when she read the news that or saw on tele, television that the Soviet Union had finally collapsed. Were she happy or were she kind of just, you know, it didn't, didn't mean anything to her at this point? You know, when you're writing biography, you're dependent upon the documents that you can find or the people you can interview. Um, I can't speculate uh, on uh, my subject's thinking unless I have grounds to do so. Mm. Uh, she uh, had a uh, wonderful friend, Mary, uh, whom she wrote to, and it was as if she just expected this. This was kind of normal, and she didn't really mm -hmm. trust it. Uh, but uh, as I say, when in, in, in uh, 1999, she wrote to Mary to say, Mary Burnett, that uh, she couldn't believe that the Russian people would actually uh, uh, elect an ex-KGB goon. Mm. So she was hoping for... Um, an opening in the so in the Soviet uh, system, 
but remained a bit skeptical. And then when it when she finally proved to be correct. So other than that single letter, um, conversations with her daughter and others didn't elicit any information about her in the 90s. What what she was concerned with, as per mm. usual, was she wanted to reestablish connections with her daughter, Katya. Mm. Uh, when I talked to, uh, again, um, Vasily's son, Stalin's grandson, Sasha Berdonsky, he said, you have to remember that Joseph and uh, Katya, her, da- her daughter and son, had different parents. Uh, Joseph's father was Zdanov, and you could expect Joseph. Joseph loved his mother, and the only thing he wanted to do was be with his mother in America. Yeah. Katya, who was, uh, uh, sorry, did I say Zdanov? Joseph was Moratsov's son. Mm. Uh, Kat- Katya was Zdanov's son, who was a high party member, and she herself was a fierce communist, and she faltered her mother. But in the 90s, there was a reconciliation and an effort at some kind of reconnection. So that's the only preoccupation that uh, Svetlana ever expressed Mm. to friends about that period. Mm. Does she ever go back to Russia to meet her children again after the fall of the Soviet Union? She did. uh, No, she did before the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. What what was the reunion like when she met her children again for the first time since since 1960? Well, again, these are always mysterious. It's as, as, as mysterious as us trying to figure out what's going on in Russia right now, right? Mm. There are so many possible interpretations of the narrative. Um, in 1983, Svetlana was living in England. She had left the United States because she felt she had been manipulated by the CIA. Uh, and she didn't believe in public education. She thought public education was Soviet education, indoctrination. So she wanted to send her children to private school. And by this time, she'd run out of money. And so she thought she was going to take her, because her deepest connection to her mother was the brilliant education her mother had given her and insisted on. Hmm. So she went back to the, she returned to the Soviet Union for two reasons. One, for her daughter's education, but two, because her son, Joseph, had written to her, said he was ill, he wanted to meet her in Iceland, etc. Uh, and uh, so she actually went back to the Soviet Union, to Moscow. Mm. And the meeting with Joseph was not successful. Um, she did not uh, feel, she, she felt that she'd been manipulated and there's a, a, a good chance that she had been. Uh, her experience of uh, being in Moscow was that she was either offered you know, a uh, a palatial uh, residence, um, chauffeur, whatever, or she was vilified as Stalin's daughter, one or the other. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was going to be very hard for Olga to get an education uh, unless she was indoctrinated by the pro-Soviets or, or even, or, uh, or, or she was vilified. So in fact, after six months, they went, to, they moved to Georgia. And it took a year and a half, but they eventually got back to the United States. So mm. by 86, they were back there. Uh, and she never made an effort to leave the United States after that. Mm. So you mentioned she had no money at this point, And, you know, she, she, her statement, what was it like to come back to the United States again and almost have no money? Because as, as we talked about in the United States, because, you know, the capitalist is a capitalist world and... You need, I like to say, you need money. So how how did she come by at this point? 
You know, she said at one point, uh, I was uh, born at the top of the heap. Mm. You know, there was a perfume uh, that was sold in department stores in Moscow called Svetlana. Mm. She was born uh, very, very wealthy if she had wanted access to money. And she had ended up poor. And she said, that's fate and that's okay." So mm. what she she stayed in Wisconsin, where they had uh, subsidized uh, residences for uh, old age uh, people. So she was in an old age home uh, to the end of her life and then uh, taken to hospital when she was in a, an emergency. Mm. Now, her so, daughter lived in on the West Coast, which was the only and she would have gone to the West Coast, but they didn't have the same kind of subsidized health care there. Did she ever have a lot of contact with his daughter? Do know her daughter living on the west coast? Do we know if they had a, a what was their relationship like? Do we know if it was warm? Was it cold? Or did they have a good relationship? It was intimate and loving. Uh, when I first uh, uh, interviewed her, um, we were back at my um, uh, small uh, hotel room, and I watched the. Uh, room darkened as the sun was going down and she sat there and she said you know there were times you couldn't tell why but there were times when my mother fell back into the dark uh, nightmare of childhood uh, and you couldn't console her I have the impression and probably actually um, Olga said it that uh, I'm not using her real name said it uh, that uh, sometimes she was the mother and her mother was the child and so and also her mother um, took care of her. There was a moment one Mother's Day when uh, she, uh, Olga, put together breakfast for her mother and took it to her. And Svetlana said, oh, wow, it's my it's Mother's Day. Let's do something wonderful. Let's move. <laughs> so <laughs> she, had this, she had this strain of uh, nomadism. She just moved from mm. place to place to place. It was a very intimate and powerful relationship. Mm. Do you know if if a daughter wanted to meet her other half brothers or half sisters in Russia? Do we know if they ever met and if that what their relationship were like? If, if yes, yes. yes, they met. Um, Katya, if I remember correctly, refused to meet Svetlana, and so um, so um, Olga didn't meet her. Mm. But she met Joseph. But it was you know there was no uh, the person she most was most fond of was Sasha Berdonsky, Vasily's son. They had a, a, a lovely relationship. There were some other friends of uh, Svetlana's. Um, Lily Goldman, for instance, her, her black friend, uh, they had a very good relationship, but uh, she, didn't, she didn't establish any rapport with her brother. Hmm. Who knows? There might have been jealousy there. Hmm. So, so what's... To about that, what you as we talked about, she refused to to talk with interviews about Stalin. But and would you say that she is, you know, and I'm going to be a little bit comparison to that right now. And it's my, I don't know, if it's a good comparison, but you know, ex mafiosi today, they kind of live out of have to live out of the career of talking about the career. It's kind of the only way to make a living, right? Because you know. They had to talk about what it was like being this and that, and I feel like that kind of was the way on the way that she could really make, maybe not, but you know that's kind of the same with Svetlana. What she did, that her the way she lived, her legacy, 
that she only could talk the best way for her to make a living was talking about her past life in this growing up in in the but Soviet see, Union that, and the Stalin. That would be too cynical. I mean, this is a woman who turned totally against the Soviet system. Mm. When she was in uh, London, for instance, she would march in anti-nuclear parades. She Mm. didn't feel that lives should be uh, controlled by money. She did have some money left, maybe a couple hundred thousand. Uh, for the lo- a long time, she and her daughter lived in a small town in Wisconsin. It was only because her daughter was offered uh, a position on the West Coast that she went to the West Coast. But Svetlana had friends. She had her uh, cat, a wonderful picture of her with her cat. Uh, and uh, she wanted a quiet life. She didn't want, uh, she didn't want to travel. She didn't want to, it would seem. Uh, and, um, you know, the idea that she could make money out of her father was not part of her lexicon. That was not Mm. something she wanted to do. Um, Mm. She wanted to be as far from the mafioso circle as she could be. She could have probably done it easily, right? Made probably millions out of talking about her father, going to, you know, conventions and that kind of things. And, you know, book fairs, writing, published tons of material, I'm sure, but it's interesting that she chose not to do this. It's a, she, she had, she's such a fascinating character to me. Well, in fact, the what's so, um, to me, compelling about Svetlana is she was never daunted. I mean, she kept reinventing herself. Sasha Brodomsky also said to me, um, you must understand that Svetlana was never running from, she was running mm. towards. She was running, mm. running towards some... I I can't find any other word than spiritual integration uh, that he said she would never find, but mm. she always believed it was possible. Uh, and I, I um, became a friend of uh, a woman called Rosamond Richardson, who had written a book about the uh, Stalin purges and who had known Svetlana personally. Mm. And she did say what an extraordinarily intelligent, but also um not mystical, but a, a person who did have a, a spiritual dimension to them, uh, which is how she put it. Uh, what's so interesting is the idea that Svetlana might have been her da- her father's daughter, but the genetic pool was empty when she mm. <laughs> when she entered because mm. she was as much an uh, an, uh, a, an opposite to her father. Though she was stubborn, she could be fierce. Uh, she finally, uh, after a couple of after I think it's ten years, she was allowed to become an American citizen, and she said she was very happy to become an American citizen. The only thing that was hard about swearing allegiance was that you had to swear allegiance that you would kill to support the republic. She said, "I could never kill anybody." Hmm. Um, what would you say, say is the legacy of Svetlana? I suppose her books, um, it would be interesting uh, to now that we're back into um, a world that is so full of riddles and confusions Mm. and interpretations when it comes to the Soviet Union, Uh, sorry, when it comes to Russia, (laughs) Uh, 
contemporary Russia, you know, apparently there was a um, another general in the uh, uh, hierarchy, in the Putin hierarchy, who was aware of what uh, Prigozhin was doing. Now, what will his fate be? You know, who's going to get rumbled? Who's going to survive? Will Putin go? You know, what's happening among the criminal elite, etc.? It would be interesting to take Svetlana's book, Twenty Letters to a Friend, and her world, uh, and my book, uh, to see her perspective on how that world functions. Mm. Like, like you said, she kind of predicted it with, you know, yeah. when she said, "Why would yeah. they elect him as president yeah. in '99?" That's right. In 2000, he was elected, but he was running in '99. Mm. Yeltsin mm. had nominated him, uh, and then he had uh, his. Uh, his status as president confirmed in the 2000 election. Mm. I mean, and probably some of it was rigged, but not enough to, uh, you know. And uh, I spoke to uh, a um, wonderful um, uh, historian at Columbia University who told me that uh, when he was working in the Soviet Union on a regular basis, 50% of the population were pro-Salon and 50% were anti. It was still a divided mm. response. Mm. Because I've, I've... the and it's what Putin is playing on, the the idea of wanting to be a first world power. Mm. You know, I mean, I'm a Canadian. I don't, I'm not the least bit interested in that, right? Mm. But if you're American with your notion of American exceptionalism and so on, you do believe that you have to be the most important country mm. in the world. And, mm. and Putin and Stalin were uh, moving in that direction. I mean, the idea that Stalin was one of the three to negotiate the future of Germany and the world after the Second World War indicates the distance. He brought the country at great cost, but made a lot of Russians very proud. I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, before I go, where, do you have anything you want to promote? Any social media where people might find you or where people can buy your books? Should they be interested in reading more? Which you absolutely should about Svetlana. Uh, my uh, webpage is rosemarysullivan.com uh, and you will find uh, places including Amazon, for instance, where you can buy the book. Uh, and uh, there's a connecting link to something called Shepherd, which is a podcast where uh, uh, I am talk- I've been invited to talk about my book, Villa Herbel, World War II Escape in a House in Marseille. Uh, and of course, I am on Facebook and uh, it's in and uh, LinkedIn. Thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been with Nathan Schwell. Please check out some other episodes. I'm sure you're going to find something you like. And please like, share, and subscribe. We are re- available on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Please write a little review of us on iTunes if you like this episode. Thank you so much for coming. Nice see you next time so you've got an idea for a business the store of your dreams there's just one thing to figure out everything that's why shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online in person and everywhere else sell on social media source products with an app to get that first sale feeling it's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want so when you're ready to bring your idea to life power it up with shopify sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen 